Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name is Mike Fenton-Stevens, which you may already know. You may also know that my time capsule is the podcast where people tell me five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to forget. Something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. This episode of my time capsule is dedicated to the mother of Carl Simmons, one of our regular listeners. Carl's mum's name was Irene, and Carl introduced his mum to my time capsule. Sadly, Irene passed away recently, so we thought we'd remember her with this special episode. Our condolences to Carl and his dad. And as a special treat, my guest in this episode is the wonderful Professor Alice Roberts. Alice is an academic, writer and broadcaster, interested in the structure of humans, how we function and our place in the wider environment. She combines a fascination with human biology and history, which are often considered to be separate subjects. Alice, however, is demonstrating how they are intertwined and inseparable. Alice originally trained as a doctor, but left surgery behind to become a university academic, teaching clinical anatomy to students and doctors, and researching human origins and disease in ancient bones. From very early in her academic career, she became involved in university outreach, listening and learning from others' experience and expertise. She's been Professor of Public Engagement with Science at the University of Birmingham since 2012. Now, on top of that, Alice has presented more than 100 television documentaries, ranging across human biology, history and archaeology. She first appeared on television in 2001 as a human bone specialist on Channel 4's Time Team and went on to present Coast on BBC Two and then to write and present a range of television series for the BBC, including The Incredible Human Journey, Origins of Us and Ice Age Giants, as well as several Horizon programmes. She also presented a number of history series on Channel 4, including Britain's Most Historic Towns, Fortress Britain and Ancient Egypt by Train, as well as Curse of the Ancients and Royal Autopsy on Sky History. Alice's longest-running series, BBC Two's Digging for Britain, has been going strong for more than 10 years and is better than ever. Watch the latest series, it's fabulous. Now, if that wasn't enough, Alice is a keen artist and enjoys exploring ways of engaging people with science through art. And she's written numerous popular science books. Her book, The Incredible Unlikeliness of Being, was shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize 2015. Her latest book, Crypt, her 14th, is out at the end of February, when she will also embark on a theatre tour talking about it. 
Alice lives with her husband, David Stevens, and two children, is a pescatarian and a confirmed atheist, and a former president of Humanists UK. So, as you can see, Alice likes to keep herself busy. Amazing, then, that she found an hour to chat with me about the things she wants in a time capsule. And here is that chat. Hello! <laughs> there you are, he surprised you. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, how are you? Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too, in the ether. <laughs> yeah, in this weird way. Uh, there we are. My daughter is called Hannah Roberts. Yeah. Through marriage. And my name is Stevens. Oh, there you go. There you go. Robert Stevens is everywhere. It's fated. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely fated. <laughs> what can you do? And lovely of you to do this, Alice. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm a big fan. I love digging for Britain. I just, it, it's obsessive, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely. It's fabulous. I got so excited that, what's it, the dodecahedron that they found? Unbelievable. What's that? It's just bizarre. I mean... <laughs> I was like, somebody must know what these are. Come on. <laughs> so we got Lorena Hitchens to come and talk about it because obviously she's just finished her master's. She's starting a PhD and she's like, I don't know. I <laughs> know. <laughs> Suddenly those things, they show you actually how much you don't know. That's yeah. what's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's... I mean, that's a fantastically complex thing. Obviously very important. We have no idea. It's kind of the uh, antithesis of the amazing Rutland mosaic that we had mm. in series nine and then caught up with it again in series 10 yeah you know when when that was uncovered it was immediately obvious what it was it was the trojan war and in fact they've been doing more work on it and they think it's not the version from the iliad it is the version from i think aeschylus from a from an aeschylus play it's just uh, it's absolutely brilliant i mean you know that where you've got that bit of culture that we completely understand Mm-hmm. Or at least, you know, we understand those details. And then you have something like the Dodecahedron, which is obviously a lot smaller. And you just get, I, I have no idea. Uh, the wisdom of the masses at the moment. So Twitter went crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think the wisdom of the masses is it is coming down with the majority thinking it might be something to do with knitting. I just don't believe it because I you yeah. can use it. And people have used replica Dodecahedra to knit with. But mm. it's overly complicated. Yeah. Why, why would they make it quite so beautiful as well? Yeah. It's really so ornamental, isn't it? And for something so functional, mm. why mm. would it be that ornamental? Yeah. And every hole is a different size. That's the ridiculous thing about it. And every dodecahedron they find is a different size as well. So it's obviously not a consistent thing, is it? No, it's, uh, it doesn't seem to be that consistent. But the size of the holes, you know, in proportion to the dodecahedron yeah. seems to be a really important thing. So, the, you know, the fact that there are 12 different sized holes, you can kind of lay them out and there's a sequence of sizes. Yeah. Um, and then people have said, oh, it's finishing gloves, it's finishing fingers. And I'm like, who's got 12 fingers? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, dear. oh fantastic. Oh. So um, I don't know how you do it. First of all, I don't know how you give me the time. One, you've got a family. Two, yeah. They're at school. <laughs> I mean, honestly, Alice, you go to medical school, you think, no, child, then I'll do this. And then you become a professor eventually. And then you go on lecture tours and you do make television programs and you do lectures and broadcasts. And, and then you're in, involved in lots of different societies. And uh, just when are you going to do something with your life? That's all I want to know. No, I don't know. Maybe next year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's very impressive. Yeah, I think your mum and dad must have instilled you with a desire for knowledge that has driven you through all these things. Oh, I think the only thing I got from my parents was an Anglican work ethic guilt. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I find it very difficult <laughs> to say. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> my husband's tried to train it out of me a bit, but <laughs> I right. find it. Yeah, I find it difficult. It dogs me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was brought up a Catholic, and therefore I'm able to sit and contemplate. Oh, that's much better. Which means do nothing, <laughs> really. Yeah, it's much nicer. <laughs> But I still feel guilty. I'm not sure what it is, though. Catholic guilt isn't, we're not sure what it's about. We just are guilty. It's just in there. Now, look, um, would you like me to record this locally as well? That would be lovely, yes, thank you. We ought to get on with it because I know you've you've probably I didn't know if we were already in it because we were having such fun. You never know. You never know. It's one of those things. I'm recording now. Fantastic. Okay. So all we're going to talk about, well, it's up to you what we talk about because you choose five things to put into a time capsule. Oh, that's been such fun. Yeah. Four things that you cherish and one thing that you'd like to see the end of. And I want to talk about this as well. 
Yes. This is very exciting. He's just arrived. Oh my god! Oh my god! It's a thing! Oh my god! Is that, ah. that is that the first copy you've got? They arrived yesterday. Oh, oh wow! That's the it's first just, copy you've seen. Oh, yeah. That, that's beautiful. An actual book. It's oh an actual my word. book. I know it's weird. Oh. It's all I've ever done in my life is written a comedy book with some other people, and I I was so excited when it turned up, and there it was. But the idea that you wrote that yourself and all the research—I mean, crypt—it's a fascinating subject, isn't it? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, I've always been obsessed with burial archaeology and it's such a great time to be writing about it right now because of the incredible insights that we're getting from genetics. I mean, it is yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah. Yes, it's extraordinary the advances that have been made in how they can tell you know, what happened to people. And then that thing of following it through, being able to say, well, actually, we can find people, basically, who are related to these people now. Yeah, yeah. Astonishing. Uh- it's a, it's the kind of layers and layers of it. That, you know the fact that you can look at family relationships mm. way in the past. You can you can look at migrations in a way that we've not been able to before. That's incredibly important. Yeah. Um, and then diseases as well. So this new book is a lot about disease, which takes me back to my own PhD as well, yeah, which is all quite. paleopathology. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my wife has a PhD in biochemistry, but she mm. was always fanatical about genetics and yeah. those things. She loves it. Yeah. And she told me years and years ago, and I sort of, I took no notice of it because I didn't think I really understood it. But she told me that thing of the genetic difference within the human race being very slight, mm. certainly in comparison with, say, just a tribe of, of chimpanzees. Yeah, yeah. That, that they have much more genetic variation than than the whole human race. And yeah. that goes back to that thing you were working on of, of whether Africa is, is the source of humans. Yeah, and we're quite sure about that now, that, no. you know, Africa is where our species originated. Because mm. we can see that. I mean, we suspected that before we had the genetics because the earliest fossils of modern humans, Homo sapiens, were from Africa. Yeah. And then also the predecessors seem to be there as well. Although I think there's some... There's, you know, you could you could debate about Homo erectus, I think, because right. you've got Homo erectus fossils from Africa that are 1.8 million years old, but we've also got them in the Republic of Georgia as well. Right. So it could be that actually Homo erectus originates in Western Asia mm. and then migrates back into Africa. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of detail we're missing. But in terms of our species, yeah, we, we come from Africa and then we can see early early Homo sapiens with still some archaic traits going back some 300,000 years ago. Mm. And then uh, sometime, sometime after 100,000 years ago, there's a migration out of Africa. And we think there were several migrations, but only one of them has really led to the colonisation of, uh, of the old world of right. Africa, Asia and, and Europe and Australia, of course, yeah. And do you think um, that lack of variation in the gene in the human race. Is that down to the fact that at one point we went down to a very small number of people? Or is it that we've not been around that long? It's kind of both. <laughs> yeah, ah, right, it's, okay. it's a combination of the fact that we're a relatively young species mm-hmm. and that there have been these bottlenecks. Uh, yeah. And when you get a bottleneck, uh, which, you know, in brutal real terms means a lot of people dying yeah. and you're left with a small number, then obviously what you've done at that point is massively reduce the gene pool. Yeah. Yeah, what a fascinating mm-hmm. idea that at one point we almost died out. Yeah, well, I think there have been several times when humanity could have been wiped out, actually. There have been, uh, you know, and there are quite a few bottlenecks that are mm. related to large environmental catastrophes, really. Yeah. You know, like the, the eruption of Toba just over 70,000 years ago. We know that there was a population crash then. And when you've, you know, when you're down to small numbers, when you are actually just a few thousand, you're very vulnerable as a species. Yeah. And then you look at those poor northern white rhinos, the two of them, mum and daughter. Oh, it's so desperately sad. Isn't it yeah. terrible? Terrible. Mm, mm. Yeah, well, maybe it would have been a good thing if we hadn't gone through. But then, you know, look, there's people like you, Alice. We can look at it and we can learn from it, surely. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm very alert to the fact when I'm studying anything to do with ancient humans that they don't exist in a in a bubble they don't exist separate from their environment and separate from all the species around them mm. and so we do obviously see humans in that kind of ecological setting there's a massive shift i think with the with the neolithic so when we start farming when when we have that agricultural revolution and the population booms at that point the neolithic is when we really start to see deforestation mm-hmm. uh, because people are cutting down trees to make way for crops 
Uh, and it's also when we have domesticated animals. And of course, those domesticated animals are just going to increase and increase and increase. That's the beginning of the kind of the crisis. It is a crisis that we've mm. ended up with today. But those, you know, those Neolithic farmers 11,000 years ago would have had no idea no, <laughs> what they were quite. laying the groundwork for. Well, the world is enormous and empty. You know, yeah, they, they can do yeah. anything they like with it, they, they yeah. think. And we mm. just keep doing the same thing until there are so many of us that everything we do is having a terrible effect. Yeah, Madness. we know there are edges now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah quite. <laughs> a lovely idea. Yes, the world is round and therefore you will come back to the same place. Yeah. It doesn't go on forever, no. Mm. Yeah. So you must be just fitting a tour in of Crypt. Yeah, it's basically squeezed in between my <laughs> university teaching, mm -hmm. a lot of which takes place in the um, in the first semester. I'm teaching embryology to the medical students at Birmingham. At the moment, I'm, te oh, I'm, I'm doing a bit of embryology still, actually. I'm teaching embryology to biosciences students tomorrow, mm. but also musculoskeletal anatomy, again, to the first years. I love teaching first-year medical students. It just yeah. takes me back to my own origins, yeah. How lovely. Yes, I spoke to a stand-up comedian the other day who is a, a an anaesthetist which I have to concentrate to say. Who's uh, that then? Uh, his name's Ed Patrick. Ah. He's actually an anaesthetist, but he is also a, a quite successful stand-up comedian. And very yeah. funny. But he was saying that one of the feelings that he put in, strangely, into his time capsule was the first day at medical school because he thought, I'm here. Yeah. And you have five years ahead of you where you go, well, all I'm going to do is learn. This yeah. is fabulous. Yeah. yeah. Although the first day was a bit weird for me because I was at Cardiff and uh, we did a lot of dissection at Cardiff, which I loved. <laughs> but the very first day involves you kind of rocking up to the medical school and them going, right, here's a guy who's selling lots of instruments and you need to assemble your own dissection kit and you get this wow. nice little roll and then you kind of go, well, I think I need that scalpel, that scalpel, maybe that pair of forceps. <laughs> and <laughs> it all you... starts to seem really serious. <laughs> yes, and you get very worried about the student who says, it's fine, I have everything I need. No, oh, don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> right, avoid that one. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, good luck with it. I look forward to reading the book. It looks fascinating. And you've written a children's book as well, haven't you? Just just, be, just to fill the yeah, time up. You know. Yeah, I, I'd wanted to write a children's book for a long time and I'd actually started writing a book for my own children. Right. How old are they, Alice, do you mind? They are now 10 and 13. Right. So kind of when I started writing it, it was a couple of years ago, so they were younger. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to write about people in the Ice Age. I wanted to bring that life alive. I wanted to describe how hunter-gatherers lived. Mm. But I also wanted to explore that fascinating insight that we've had from genetics, that modern humans, homo sapiens and Neanderthals, which are a different species, Homo neanderthalensis, mm. came into contact with each other. Mm. And the reason we know that is because those populations interbred with each other and there's Neanderthal DNA that's come back into modern human genomes. So it's quite complex because even though Neanderthals as a species have gone extinct, mm. there's bits of Neanderthal DNA knocking around in us. And I think I've got 2.7% Neanderthal it was estimated at, which is more than Bill Bailey, which I don't understand. <laughs> um, <laughs> That makes but no yeah. sense at all. <laughs> no. no. Although I think he'd probably tell you he was a uh, 10% troll. Yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> but I wanted to write about contact between these two very different groups of humans. And I think it's normally, and very often in archaeology we do this, we kind of frame everything as though it's always adults and children are kind of peripheral, sometimes mm. overlooked completely. Mm. And I wanted to explore the idea of that first contact being between children yeah. and you know what they would make of each other. Yeah. I also, I think children have a very innate sense of time. Once they get the idea of time, they get fascinated by it. And you know, understandably, because it is an extraordinary thing to contemplate, isn't it? That actually having mm. to wait an hour is interminable. But you can quite easily think of something 10,000 years ago and feel at home. Do you think? I don't, I'm not sure we can. I, I think as you get older, you get better at it. No, but right. I don't know whether we're hoodwinking ourselves, because I think that you understand it as a kind of abstract concept without actually having a visceral grasp of it right so i yeah. think that um richard dawkins wrote quite eloquently about this about the fact that we're trapped in our own scale mm. and that you know i think we are when we look at biology as well that we most people prefer looking at things you can see with your own eyes rather yes. than microbiology <laughs> yes um and i think the same is true with time that you you can conceptualize years and certainly children can understand years 
as you get older, you get better at grasping what a decade means. Mm. I think I'm just about able to grasp a hundred years now in a visceral way. I mean, you know, right. in a way that you go, yeah. oh, that's what it feels like. That's the passage of time. A thousand years. Mm, it's <laughs> a bit of a stretch, I think. And then when you start talking about tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, it is just numbers. Yeah. And you can try to represent it visually, but I still think you're only, you, you are only then understanding it as a metaphor and not really kind of able to properly envisage it yeah no i think mm. you're, uh, yeah i think you're right i'm wrong uh, it's just <laughs> i've always like no it's all right I, I like to be wrong i've always loved the concept though that i and i said i sit down and i meditate as it were contemplate things i can spend hours thinking about something traveling through space for what is fundamentally forever yeah and uh, <gasps> you know i can waste days doing that <laughs> <laughs> that sounds it's very it's very like a sort of medieval monk sort of contemplating the vastness of the, yeah. the unknowableness of the universe yeah. <laughs> yes but they called it god yeah quite yes i'm with you on the humanist area without a doubt uh, I was thinking of becoming a humanist priest or whatever you call it yeah, yeah. a celebrant yeah a celebrant yeah. that's right yeah Oh, I met some absolutely wonderful humanist celebrants, especially through the course of writing the three little books that I've written with with Andrew Copson. We, mm. we did the little book of humanism. Something I really wanted to do while I was president of Humanist UK was to yeah. make something that was a bit more accessible than some of the weighty tomes on humanism that are around. <laughs> something you could just dip into and also just explain what humanism is because it's actually not a complicated concept at all. And I think it's a very natural way of being and approaching the world, a very kind of natural feeling philosophy. Uh, to me, religion feels a lot more complicated mm. in that you're introducing kind of details and complexity that you don't really need to be there and we don't have any evidence for. So, No, and questions that you can't answer. No, it's a fairly straightforward approach to the world where you take it as you find it and you mm -hmm. use science to understand it because that's the best tool we have for understanding the world around us. But then it's not just that rational approach. It's the fact that it's combined with what I would consider to be the best of our human faculties, so things like empathy and kindness and, mm -hmm. you know, that you use those to make moral and ethical decisions. You don't rely on an ancient text which might be, you know, a little bit out of date. Yeah, or, or a fear <laughs> of punishment. Yeah, yeah. Of course, is yeah. one of the main drives of, of all religion is yeah. if you don't do it, you get punished. Well, religion's all bound up, isn't it, with the, the need to make people in society behave themselves and, mm. and that kind of idea of, of leviathan the idea that you know there has to be something uh that is watching your behavior and keeping you on the straight and narrow yes and that maybe there's a time in early societies when that's a that's always a necessary thing to reduce violence but we've kind of passed through that now i don't know whether it is i mean i I think what's very interesting is that there's plenty of humanist thought if we go back into ancient literature there's mm. actually a lot of humanistic atheistic thought being expressed and then of course we have periods of time particularly in the west where we've had complete suppression of other ways of thinking mm. in a way that i expect that there were still plenty of I, this is completely unscientific because i can't know this but <laughs> no. uh, i suspect that there were plenty of atheists during the middle ages it's yeah. just they couldn't say they were because my goodness if you said you were you would have been burned at the stake. Yeah. <laughs> the I mean, and that's still the case now, isn't it? You see people now in societies, you say, well, being involved in the religion of that society is so fundamental to being part of it that yeah. you could never say, well, actually, do you know what? I don't believe in this. Yeah. You have to keep going at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's bound up with so much about identity and politics. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But, yeah. yeah, we've got wonderful, there's, you know, wonderful ancient Indian philosophy, this is a great quote about who painted the peacocks. Nature did, <laughs> which is just, oh, it's wonderful. But you don't Lovely, need yeah. deities. Why do you need deities? It's just mm -hmm. nature. Yeah, beautiful. Ah, uh, there you are. Right. <laughs> I could just chat. I really could just chat. <laughs> We've got I, things to put in a hole in the ground there, haven't we, Mike? <laughs> uh, I know. And seeing as a person who constantly takes things out of a hole in the ground, it seems almost cruel to ask you to bury things away. And I'd, I'm interested to see how you've approached this, whether you think it's a thing for you or whether you think it's a thing for the future. Yeah. Mm. Well, I've had to approach it in a very particular way, Mike, and I don't know if anybody's done this before on your podcast, but uh, when I'm thinking about a time capsule, very often for me, that is a burial. 
because uh-huh. I look at burials that are time capsules. They have an individual in them. Those bones are telling us all sorts of stories about that individual. We're able to construct elements of a biography from those bones mm. and more powerfully now than ever before with the era of archaeogenomics, we're reading entire ancient genomes, we're decoding ancient DNA. Mm. But it's also the objects in those graves which tell us about that person, about the culture that they were part of. So that's been a kind of central feature in these books I've been writing, Ancestors yeah. Buried and Now Crypt, is that, uh, you know, burials are time capsules. Mm. So mm-hmm. uh, my time capsule, I have to be in it, I'm afraid. Okay. So it is, it is a burial and there are various objects with me. Now, I haven't counted myself as one of the objects because um, I wanted to have four <laughs> other things to put in there. Um, so that's how I approached it. I don't know if anybody else has buried themselves along with their objects. <laughs> no, and I'm glad it's not you because it, you sort of think, well, I want you to bury the thing you most treasure in a time cut. You go, yeah, well, me, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> well, also, I'm not going to miss these things because I'm going to be dead. Yes, quite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that gets around that. <laughs> yeah, no looking down on it from on high. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, lovely. Okay, so um, let's talk about the objects what, that go in there with you. Well, my mind was immediately drawn. I'm so thinking about my time capsule burial. Mm-hmm. I sometimes say I'd like to be buried in a Bronze Age kissed burial with a little Bronze Age pot, and that would confuse archaeologists of the future. <laughs> um, but I'm going to put that mischievousness to one side <laughs> and go, right, OK, what what could I place in there that would tell people of the future a bit about me, a bit about the 21st century in Britain? What do I want to say to people in the future? Mm. And my mind was immediately going back to one of the most brilliant burials I've ever seen and researched, which was the Pocklington Chariot Burial. Oh, my goodness. Where we've got a middle-aged man buried in a crouched position in what we have to presume was his chariot. And the <laughs> yeah. chariot is standing up in the ground. And not only that, it has a couple of ponies drawing it. So <laughs> wow. there are these skeletal ponies in the yeah. grave as well. So he's all ready to go off to the afterlife, presumably. Oh. And I imagine that that is his chariot and it's a very important part of his identity. Oh, I'm sure it is. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, he's going to say, when I get there, they're going to know who I am. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's how he got around. That's how he would have travelled around the territory that he was familiar with and probably ruled. Now, I don't rule any territory, but I do like travelling around and say, I'm going to be buried in my camper van. <laughs> Lovely. Yes. And uh, how many adventures have you had in that? Uh, many. And it's mm. um, camper van number two to me. So I had my first camper van about 20 years ago, maybe a bit longer ago than that. And I bought it from the wonderful Professor McAston uh, of Time Team fame, of course. But we also hung out together at Bristol University. Mm. And uh, he introduced me to camper van life. I, you know, I'd not really even thought of owning a camper van before I met Mick. And it just seemed like such a fantastic way of getting around. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that you've basically got your home with you. I mean, it's just brilliant and it's very, very flexible. Mm. I love travelling around in camper vans. I like taking it abroad. I love travelling around Britain in it. We go up to the we go up to the Outer Hebrides in it. It's just fantastic. And it is, it is a home from home. I love mm. it. Yeah, and there's a difference in the speed that you travel, isn't there, in a camper van? It's it's not getting somewhere quickly. You're not worried about getting there. The journey is part of it, isn't it? Because at any point you think, well, let's just pull into this lay-by, have a cup of tea, yes. uh, you know, make a sandwich. Yeah, and it's lovely. And you can break journeys as well. So, you know, quite often if I go um, living in North Somerset, if I am travelling up, for instance, to see my cousin on the west coast of Scotland... I will plan to break the journey somewhere. And I, I never plan to the extent I book anywhere. Right. And that's another thing I love about having a camper van is you just set off. Um, <laughs> and uh, But very often I end up in Cumbria, which I love. So I'll <sighs> end up somewhere in Cumbria, have, mm. a, have a lovely night, you know, camping by a beautiful lake. That's the dream. Yeah. And then carry on up to Scotland. I'm very jealous. I've always wanted a camper van and I've never owned one. My wife's, Do it. No, my wife's father owned camper van after camper van and he in fact the first one he had he bought an, an old lorry and converted it so Brilliant. she has memories of sitting in the back of this thing thinking oh for goodness sake where are we going now <laughs> and so she's never let me get one. Oh no <laughs> she said, no no hotels that's it oh. <laughs> yeah but i do every time i get in the car with my grandchildren i think i almost always say right where should we go 
Yeah. Because that's yeah. that's the sense of it, isn't it? Yes, I think so. And it is that element of um, being nomadic as well. Mm. We're all settled down now, but it's quite an unusual thing for humans. Most of our ancestors were nomads. Yeah. We only started settling down, you know, 11,000 years ago when the Neolithic happened and we started becoming farmers and had to stay where our crops and our animals were. Mm. And, uh, you know, the Neolithic reaches Britain, what, 6,000 years ago. So here in Britain, we've only had settled communities for that long mm. yeah so it's very odd what we're doing you know most of our ancestors would look at what we're doing now and go oh oh don't you want to move don't you want to <laughs> don't you feel the need to kind of just up sticks and go and i do ah <laughs> uh, yeah yeah well you have the option of course with a camper van of actually one day saying that you know what get the people you love in it and say let's go let's yeah. go and go yeah. where go anywhere go yeah. anywhere in the world yeah, yeah, just drive and drive. And for as long yeah. as you like as well, as long as you can afford the petrol. Yeah, that's true. I am I am eagerly awaiting the next generation of electric campervans. Ah, they haven't yes. quite got there. There's a small version of a V-dub campervan at the moment, mm -hmm. but they haven't quite got there. But I, I'll be first on the list when they do bring out the electric yeah, campervan. Yeah, that, that can't be far off, can it? Once they, no, I don't think so. Once all buses become electric, and you know, which they will mm. do. Once that happens, then the, the technology will advance incredibly quickly, I think. Yeah, it's gathering pace. It's bound to happen. Yeah. How yeah. fantastic. Uh, do you mind me asking what sort of camper van it is? Yeah. Well, the first one I had actually, from which I bought from Mick, was a very beautiful classic. Well, I say it's classic. A lot of people think it's not classic. It was a VW Type 25 Synchro, mm. which was a kind of blocky thing from the 1980s. Yeah. Not the kind of cutesy, you know, old-fashioned split windscreen or bay window camper mm. vans. It was the blocky ones that came in. And I think people who own those more classic V-dub camper vans uh, very uh, rudely <laughs> refer to it as the wedge. Uh, <laughs> but I liked that kind of 1980s styling. And also it was a beast. It was a synchro. It was a four-wheel drive camper van. Right. And you could drive through Fords. You could just drive anywhere with it. It was fantastic. My current camper van's not quite as, um, uh, but it's, uh, it's a V-dub Type 5 California Lovely. So it's a bespoke camper van. It's not mm -hmm. a conversion. It's not as pretty as my old one. So my old one, I we did the conversion ourselves, and I painted little Hokusai waves inside it on the on the plywood. Mm. This one is, I hate to say it, but it's a bit grey. It's very utilitarian. It all works, of course. You know, this is the thing <laughs> yeah. about this German manufacturing. It works, and it's utilitarian. And it does look a little bit like the inside of a portally, I think, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I've done my best to kind of, you know, put some cushions in there and Lovely. Know, stickers. Well, we'll put but... <laughs> your original. You could be buried in your original. Oh, that yeah, I'll do that then. I'll be buried in my original bright green mm. Type 25 synchro. Yeah. Lovely. When I first started acting and I came out of university, we organised our own tour of Britain, which was a mad tour. So we were doing things like Glasgow one night, Portsmouth the next, Edinburgh the next, that sort of tour. We took any date that was available. But we went to Australia House where you could buy camper vans from Australians who'd come over to tour Europe and then they were just selling them before they went back. And for, I think, £500, we bought a lovely dark green original VW camper. Mm. And we all crammed into it and toured the country for about four months. Had a fantastic time. Yeah. And at the end of it, because all of us were living in rented flats, we said, what, what, who's going to keep the camp? Do we need this for the next tour? I don't know when the next tour is. So somebody took it to a street in West London and left it with the door open and the key in the ignition. Oh. And we walked away. Oh. Left the logbook on it. Poor thing. So somebody's got it. I, yeah. God, I wish I'd kept it. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's still out there. Mm. I wonder if it's still going. I hope it is. I hope somebody gets in touch. Oh, <laughs> Hang on a minute. Hang on it. I've got that. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could remember the registration. I must have a photo oh. somewhere. Oh, look it up. How lovely. Yeah. Anyway, let's put that oh, in. Oh, I hope it comes back to you, Mike. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Because now I could. I could just mm. buy it back from them. <laughs> it wouldn't cost £500, though, would it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, OK, so that's you. You're not the object, but you're in your camper van. That's number one. Yeah. So what's in there with you? Right, I'm loath to drag you away from the lovely Alice Roberts, but we have to leave a gap here for the crucial playing of some ads. Shan't be away long. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to My Time Capsule, where I'm sure you're itching to get back to Alice Roberts, which is a good idea because she's a doctor, and she can probably give you some cream for that. Yeah, this is really tricky. I wanted to put in objects which kind of represent where we are as a society and the kind of achievements that we've made. And so I think the next thing I'd like to have in there is a COVID vaccine. Great. I thought about the genetic sequence Mm -hmm. of COVID and maybe have that printed out or something. But I actually think, no, maybe I think the vaccine, because the genetic sequence is the start of it. Mm. But the vaccine is phenomenal. And it does represent, I think, the pinnacle of our science at the moment. Right. And I I think about this a lot. I mean, I was astonished at the way that scientists around the world worked together during COVID. I was astonished and just massively heartened by it. Mm. I think the pandemic pushing us into that time of crisis, for some people it brought out the worst in them actually, but for a lot of people it brought out the best. We found communities coming together in a way that we hadn't really seen before. We saw the immense admiration and gratitude that people have from the NHS, even if that doesn't translate back into pay restitution for Mm -hmm. doctors. We saw the way that scientists in particular, I mean, I, I felt very strongly during COVID that we there were some ways in which our society failed globally and the failures included pulling up drawbridges. Mm. We, in some ways, we acted in a very medieval way, individual countries hoarding resources. And when it came to the vaccine, that happened as well, of course, you know, that we're buying up loads of vaccine and hoarding it. Yeah. And not really, you know, the, the global north didn't really fulfil its promises to the global south in terms of vaccine equity. So there were all those problematic things that happened, which I hope we'll learn from. But... The fact that while you had that kind of political divisiveness happening, you had scientists around the world working sans frontier, working without borders, helping each other, sharing data. I mean, we had data out of China very, very quickly. Mm. Those Chinese scientists were you know, very quick in sharing genome sequences, that kind of thing. And so scientists right across the world came together to tackle what is the biggest challenge Well, one of the biggest challenges, I think, you know, obviously climate change is still here and present with us, but Mm -hmm. one of the biggest challenges of the 21st century. And I know there was some nervousness about how quickly the vaccine was developed. The vaccine was developed that quickly because we threw resources at it. It Mm. shows us what we can do if we want to. Yeah, A lot of that is about funding. It just meant that what would normally take several years could be condensed because we were investing so heavily in it Mm. because we knew that it would be what helped to get us out of this pandemic. Yes. And that the science around the development of that vaccine, people had been talking about it for a long time. People in labs had been saying, I think this is going to work. Yeah, we were very lucky. I mean, especially with, you know, the vaccine that uses RNA, Mm. uh, we were extremely lucky that that technology was just about ready to go. Yeah. So a technology that would enable you to create a bespoke vaccine in record time, basically, mm. if you threw enough resources at it. And I I do think it is incredible. It's an amazing feat of molecular engineering, but also, you know, understanding the enemy and, and what you're up against. And, you know, so it represents to me 
the way that we need to tackle challenges, the way that we need to work together across borders globally. Mm. And I think another amazing thing that's happened during my lifetime is putting a probe on Mars and being able to see pictures from the surface of Mars. And I try to explain to my children how absolutely mind-blowing this is. Mm-hmm. And for them, it's just like, yeah, there's a probe on Mars, driving around, sending pictures back. <laughs> like, this is amazing. Crazy. But I think the vaccine is up there. And for me, possibly even, you know, slightly more impressive than managing to send a probe to Mars. It's it's an incredible feat. And it has saved countless lives. And it, it shows such promise for mankind. Yeah. I mean, what they mm. expect to be able to do with that technology is extraordinary things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we'll look back, I think, in it's a bit too close for comfort still, but we'll look back in a few decades, I think, and we will see how that investment in science during the pandemic actually carried on paying dividends. Mm. And and I think that, you know, now we're we're looking at vaccines against all sorts of viruses that seemed a long way off, actually, pre-2020, and are now looking as though they're kind of within our reach. And as we understand more and more about how a lot of cancers are related to a viral infection, Mm. we will see that that has a big impact, not just on, you know, the immediate effects of those infections in communities, but on on cancer in the longer term as well, which is amazing. And it's a brilliant thing in science, isn't it, that that open nature of the whole community. And that had been under pressure from the corporate world, I think, that that thing of, well, we want to own, you know, the thing that's going to make money. So you can't tell these other people in case they get there first. The joy of pure research is that you're not doing it with the idea of monetizing it. You're doing it to find out something, or usually, it's I think there's a, usually I mean, to disprove something. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to completely. I don't think all you know pharmacology companies are evil. Some no, of them, no. Some of them have evil people in them, and <laughs> and are doing you know things that are not necessarily that ethical. But you know the way to manage that then is to have better regulation. But also to you know for publicly funded science and corporate science to work more productively together. And we see, we see that at the you know institutes like the Crick Institute in London, mm. led by the wonderful Sir Paul Nurse, where there's a real kind of open atmosphere there and um, encouragement of knowledge sharing. Yes, because you know that's in everyone's best interest. <laughs> yeah, quite. Yeah, at the end of the day, I know. Uh, we're talking about you know scientists are are there to help humanity, and Mm. we can do that better if we share the knowledge. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And if you get the funding. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Yeah, quite. Well, let's hope that continues. My wife was a research scientist for a a long time, and she spent nearly the whole time just trying to get money. And it's it's a shame, I think. It is a shame. And, you know, as a country, we need to be investing more in science. Mm. And, of course, we saw a major blow to British science with... Um, Brexit and the withdrawal from Horizon, which is the big pan-European research programme, mm-hmm. which is about collaboration as well as funding. Yeah, we used to pay into it, of course, but we used to get back more than we paid in. Mm-hmm. So there was a worry that the government wouldn't cover that shortfall. But there's also, I think, an even more pressing worry about the fact that we have we've broken a lot of collaboration through that process, which is really sad. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a big effort now to build it back up again. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm sure eventually all those connections will be rebuilt because it's stupid not to. It is stupid, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay, lovely. I'm going to put the vaccine into the camper van with you. That's two things. So we have two you want and one you want to put in there so that the world can, or you, can forget it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I might bury it just outside the camper van. (laughs) It's not actually in... No, put it in the boot, in the boot. In the chariot burial with me. Um, Okay, so the next thing, actually having talked about the amazing feat of creating a vaccine in in super fast time and not just, well, saving lives, but also allowing society to return to normal. We've seen other astonishing peaks, pinnacles of science. The Mars rover is great, but... I'm rather fond of a probe that went even further, a probe that went to the edge of the solar system, and that is Cassini. Mm. And I think those incredible, incredible images from the Cassini probe as it made its way to the very edge of our solar system, 900 million miles away from here, (laughs) sending us pictures back over 900 million miles. I mean, this is just crazy. Mm. And there's a beautiful, beautiful image that I would like to have printed out and have in the camper van as well, which is, um, it's called the day Earth smiled and it's Earth and Saturn. So 
the Cassini probe is taking a photograph of Saturn with the rings of Saturn very clear. And then just underneath the rings is a tiny, tiny speck in the distance. And that tiny, tiny speck is Earth, looking Mm. back at Earth. Mm. So that's, yeah, that's going in there as well. Yeah. It's a very important thing, isn't it, to realise, you know, how extraordinary we are, but also how insignificant. I think it's a good thing in life to know that. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of that, what Carl Sagan called it, you know, the pale blue dot. Oh, yeah. It's an amazing image, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And with the with the day the Earth smiled, with the Cassini image, it was only the third time that the Earth had been photographed from... <laughs> Uh, the outer solar system. Yeah. And it was also interesting because it was known about before it happened. <laughs> so there was there was a bit of a frisson on social media because at that moment we knew that Cassini was out there taking a photograph of us, oh. which was amazing. I think with the other photographs we've not known, <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> so that's why it's called the day the Earth smiled. You were kind of meant to look up and smile and Cassini oh, was, taking, was taking Yeah, <laughs> was taking the picture. Yeah. Fantastic. So it's, like, it's like waving at an aeroplane, isn't it? Which yeah, I, it is. I like to yeah. do. You think yeah. so, they can't see me, but you know, why not? It's no, lovely. the thought is there. The thought is there. And yeah. again, we're talking about a mission which is, you know, a wonderful example of international collaboration. You know, NASA, ESA, the European Space Agency and the Italian Space Agency all working together on mm. that incredible mission. Mm. And also it's um, it's quite personal to me as well because I know the head of the imaging team at Cassini very well. Carolyn Porco uh, is a very, very good friend of mine, wonderful woman, and a bit of a mentor as well. She's she's one of those women. I've I've picked up various women during my life who I consider to be kind of like wise aunts, I think. Mm-hmm. And she's one of those. She's <laughs> one of those wise women that I've met on my own journey. Oh, brilliant. And it's interesting thinking of that image, isn't it? Because when we were talking earlier about the conception of time and being able to actually genuinely understand it, because we are so used to seeing models of the universe with these things going around the sun, all within a, the space of a desk, yeah, it's extraordinary to actually get the real sense of the distance yeah, and yeah. see the Earth is almost invisible. Yeah, I mean, the distances are enormous. Enormous. And then, yeah, yeah, 900 million miles. And that is not even left our no, solar system. No, yeah, that's the, the edge of our solar system, yeah. Yeah. And then poor old Cassini, you know, very sadly, mm-hmm. has not carried on heading out into the universe. No. Cassini plunged into Saturn's atmosphere back in 2017. Mm-hmm. So that was that. So it was a suicide mission. Yes. What was the probe they sent out with the idea that another civilization somewhere one day would find it out there? I'm always a bit worried about that. Mm. I mean, is that an invitation? Do we know they're going to be friendly? <laughs> yeah. It's basically going, look, we're here. We've got technology. We've got minerals. <laughs> Come and get us. <laughs> Come and get us. We can work hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, quite right. Okay, well, uh, we're going to put the probe in itself. No, no, just the image. Just the image. Yeah, because the probe is gone. So it's that picture. Okay. The day Earth smiled the day Earth from smiled. the Cassini mission. Lovely. Yeah. All right. That goes in. That's number three. So we've got two left, one good, one bad. Any order you like. So these things have been quite abstract and they're about science and they're about the way that science is benefiting humanity. I think that the vaccine has a very obvious impact on society, on humanity. The Cassini image is about curiosity and understanding the universe. Mm and how that science is culturally important and gives us that wider perspective. I'm going to bring it right back down to home now Mm -hmm. and the importance of family. And so I want to have a picture of my family in there as well. Mm -hmm. And the picture is a photograph that we take regularly pretty much every year on our wedding anniversary. My husband and I walk up to the top of Crook Peak in the Mendip Hills where we walked up on the day we got married And so I've got this wonderful sequence of photographs, us on our own, and then the children pop up and the children get bigger and bigger. So I have the the last one in that sequence of the four of us um, on top of Crick Peak, normally on a very windy day in February. (laughs) And it's it's always one of those kind of timed photos. So everybody's just managed to sit down in time. (laughs) And it's about family. It's about love. It's about um, what's important to us as humans. But there's also some, you know, useful, I think, most things, most organic things will rot away in that camper van chariot burial. 
um, hoping that these photographs survive somehow. But there's a lovely shot of a snapshot of uh, 21st century outdoor clothing there mm. as well. So that would be very interesting to historians of the future. <laughs> and if you looked at that photograph yourself in a thousand years' time, would you then say, well, clearly the habitable parts of the world were obviously very full of dangerous and, and enormous beasts, so they had to live at the very, very top of these yes. inhospitable places? <laughs> That's true. There could be all sorts of things that you could draw from that photo, which I'm not anticipating, and that could be one of them, definitely. Well, there's nothing wrong in playing a trick on people in the future. Yeah. I'm sure you've come across those occasionally. Uh, well, yeah, I, no? I think that most burials are about the moment, actually. I don't think people are thinking too far into the future. I think they're about memorialising that person mm. there and then. So this is a very different approach to it, burying yourself in the idea that you are going to be dug up at some point in the future and looked yeah. at. Yes, you don't mm. think that, do you, obviously, when you're being put in the ground. People don't think, no. oh, we're putting them in there so that somebody eventually can dig them back up again. No. Yeah. And then I wonder what they think if they did know that. Uh, so there are interesting discussions, of course, about whether it is ethical to disturb an archaeological burial. Mm. And those are very difficult discussions because we don't know what those people would have wanted. I mean, it's like with the Amesbury Archer, various druids said, he should be reburied. And English Heritage did a great big consultation on it and most people thought it was perfectly ethical to keep his bones above ground and actually to put him on display mm. in Salisbury Museum because that's done in a very respectful way and it enables people to go and read about him and look at his bones and understand what we can learn about him from his burial and I think that you know we don't know you might have gone back and said to that man who lived on Salisbury Plain three and a half thousand years ago how would you feel about us digging you up? And he might say, oh, no, put me back in the ground. Mm. Or he might say, well, yeah, that's fantastic that you still know who I am. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, wonderful. My my fame has outlived me. Uh, yes. Well, the whole family are going to be famous in the future if somebody finds yes. it. <laughs> First of all, though, they're going to go, there's a bloody camper van. Who buried that? Yes. <laughs> that's me. Yeah. I've, got to, I've got to dig the hole, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lovely. So a February wedding, though. That's unusual. Yeah, it was very quick. Mm. And it, we'd been together for 15 years by the time we decided to get married. And we decided to get married in a very impromptu way when my husband just said, should we get married? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that sounds like a fun thing to do. And you have to wait three weeks, I think, for the legal checks to go through. And we were like, right, we'll do. We'll get married on the next available Saturday after those legal checks have gone through. <laughs> and the next available Saturday, amazingly was Saturday the 14th of February wow. in 2009. And I thought, God, we're never going to be able to get a slot in a registry office that short notice on Valentine's Day. <laughs> but we did, yeah. So we got married on Valentine's Day, which basically means my husband will never forget our wedding anniversary. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome Valentine's Day. He remembers both. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, yes. Uh, my wife, I think in order to make me remember our wedding anniversary, wanted us to get married on April Fool's Day. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but we couldn't get a slot. Typical. Oh, yeah. dear. There you are. That's brilliant. How lovely. Okay. That photograph's in there. I'm going to hermetically seal it in something to make sure that it is preserved. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Right, so we've got, finally, the thing that you'd like to put in and forget. Ah, oh, so this, for me, represents one of the worst things that's going on in our society at the moment. I thought long and hard about all the things that I... This is kind of like Room 101, isn't it? What do you mm -hmm. want to stick in there? It is political three-word slogans. <laughs> that is... I'm going to have one of those slogans, which often is on the front of a lectern in a press briefing. Yes. And that is going in the ground. I absolutely <laughs> hate them. It is the worst kind of dumbing down. You know, it is reducing complicated, challenging concepts and, you know, political challenges that we're facing mm. to an almost meaningless slogan and a slogan that is endlessly repeated at every available opportunity oh. with hardly any words in between it. So I think it represents the worst thing about our politics at the moment, which is talking down to us we don't want to be talked down to. We want no. we want politicians to explain their policies and to discuss them and to be, and to treat us like grown ups. Yes. And that is not treating us like grown ups. And I also think it's really manipulative. I don't like it. It's you know it's so obviously manipulative. 
it's too close to being very lame advertising. Mm. It's often socially divisive as well. And I don't think our political leaders should be. I think that's very unethical to be socially divisive. I think a good leader throughout history, we've seen this, good kings are the kings that, that rule in a magnanimous way that understand that they have a diverse population that don't try and whip up hatred or any kind of divisive sentiment between one group of people and another. There's a fantastic story about this in my new book, Crypt, about (laughs) Ethelred and his hate speech inciting violence against the Vikings when he describes them as the cockles among the wheat, the (laughs) weed in the wheat fields. It's like calling them vermin and unleashes a tide of violence against them. So I hate that divide and rule. I think that is, you know, we should have grown out of that by now. Ethelred was doing it a thousand years ago. Our politicians should have grown out of that by now. Mm. And one of the ways they do it is with these three-word slogans. So just as an example, let's stick stop the boats in the ground. I knew it, of course, yes. Oh, my word, that phrase gets the hair on my back of my neck goes up when I hear that phrase. Just because what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just extraordinary. It's really, really extraordinary. I mean, we're talking about a really, really complex issue. We're talking about, on the one hand, migration happening because people are living in countries which are war-torn or blighted by famine and want something better for their children. You know, we all want something Mm. good for our children. Beyond that, you know, there's legal immigration and there's illegal immigration. And there are criminals at work who are putting people's lives at risk. Mm -hmm. We should be focusing on that criminal element, I think. Yeah. Not just no, just not just stop the boats. It's very just strange. Stop the boats. Just yeah. stop the boats. Yeah. It also sounds easy. It sounds easy, and it's not an easy issue. That's always what they do. Is those slogans mm. do make everything sound easy? Sound as if well, I can sort this in a moment. Yeah. It's the Trump trick of you know I'm just going to make America great again. I'm just going to yeah. do that. That's yeah. what and I'm going to do. That sounds it's, good. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Lovely. Yeah. I'd like America to be great again. That would be good. <laughs> and stop the boats and all those things. Even down to see it, say it's sorted. That drives me mad. Yeah. And during COVID, of course, hands face space. What? (laughs) I know. (laughs) You can put words in between it. I understand sentences. Yeah. I know. Hopeless. Well, I should say to you, can we put that in there? Yes, we can. Excellent. (laughs) Yes, we can, as Obama said, with his three-word slogan. No, (laughs) sometimes I like it. It depends whether I like the person, that's the problem. (laughs) But I agree with you. I think that we should – politics is far more important than it's treated by the people who actually do it. Yeah, and we're far cleverer than they think we are. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, there we are. That's it. They all go into your camper van, time capsule. And that's a lot of digging for me, but I'm very happy to put it in the ground for you. Thank you very much. Alice, it's been really delightful to talk to you and to meet you. Thank you very much for doing this. And have a fantastic tour, and I hope the book is an enormous success. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm so looking forward. I mean, this, this book completes that trilogy of Ancestors and Buried. It moves us into the Middle Ages. Mm. And I'm really looking forward to going on tour. So February, March, I'm going to be touring around the country. And there might be a few dates later in the year as well, if people keep an eye out. Great. Thanks, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Alice Roberts. Now, if you've got this far, then I'm assuming you enjoyed this podcast. I would not object to rating it highly with a simple click of a button or even reviewing it or leaving a nice comment for those who come behind you. Good and thanks. If you subscribe as well, you'll get informed every time a new episode is released. And if you subscribe to ACAST Plus and donate £2.99 a month to this project, then you'll not only get this podcast ad-free, but you'll also get our bonus episode, My Time Capsule The Debrief, with lots of behind-the-scenes stories and exclusive previews and extracts. The theme tune by Past the Peas Music is on Spotify, as are most things, apart from, of course, meaningless songs in very high voices by the heebie-jeebies, which I recorded nearly 45 years ago. Must get on with that. My Time Caption and I are both on social media, as you'd imagine, so feel free to join us there. This was a cast-off production for Acast. Thanks very much for their support, and many thanks to my producer and lovely son, John Fenton Stevens, for all his hard work making me sound reasonably capable. I'll see you soon when I'll be talking to another fascinating guest. In the meantime, thank you to the amazing Alice Roberts for making this episode. I am literally bursting with pride. Good luck with all her endeavours. I mean, it's not easy, is it, history? People make jokes about it, of course. 
which I'm sure you've guessed is what I'm going to do now. Such as, a Roman walks into a bar holding up two fingers and he says, five beers, please. Anyway, I won't finish with a joke. I'll finish with this great quote from the lovely Desmond Tutu, who said, the one thing we always learn from history is that we don't learn from history. I think Alice will change that. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 